Hi, welcome to Come Follow Me with Free, episode 71, Walk With Me. Okay, you guys, I agonized a little bit over what exactly to talk about in these chapters, and there are so many things to choose from. I always feel like there's tons of things to choose from, but especially these chapters from this account of the genealogy from Adam and then the first part of the story of Enoch. A lot of times I try to choose a topic that maybe I feel like other Come Follow Me podcast might not focus on because it's not the obvious one, you know, just to give you guys some variety if you're listening to multiple podcasts. But this time I ended up still focusing on what I think is the obvious one because it is just too important to pass up. Okay, so just to give you a timeline of Enoch's life. At age 25, he was ordained to the priesthood by Adam himself. At age 65, he receives this vision that we are going to read about, and he is blessed by Adam. After that, for 365 years, he continues to preach the gospel, and it's not until age 430 that he is translated along with the city of Zion. Enoch is a direct descendant of Adam. He was the great, 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 great grandson of Adam and Eve. Although that feels a little confusing based on how we think of how long people live in our day, considering the fact that Adam himself ordained Enoch at the age of 25 and blessed him personally at the age of 65, we learn here in these chapters that people lived a long time back then. Adam lived to be 930 years old. I'm just trying to even wrap my mind around that. What do you do for that long? Like... (laughs) I almost feel like I'd be like, okay, I'm ready to move on to the next stage. But I'm sure he filled his time and was not bored. There has always been speculation about whether the scriptures really mean that they actually lived that many years in the way that we measure years. And we have confirmation from modern day prophets that that actually is true. Up until the time of the flood, people lived many hundreds of years, or at least these patriarchs do. That's the record we have. After the flood, the average lifespan decreased to under 200 years and has continued to decrease as time has gone on. An ancient historian named Josephus, who lived at the time of Christ, said this of the lifespan of the ancient patriarchs, and this has been quoted many times by general authorities. Let no one, upon comparing the lives of the ancients with our lives and with the few years which we now live, Think that what we have said of them is false, or make the shortness of our lives at present an argument that neither did they attain so long a duration of life. There have been several theories proposed as to why they lived so long, and so if you're interested, I encourage you to go to LDS.org and read some of the articles. They're super interesting. But ultimately, the answer to that question is we don't exactly know precisely why they were living that long. And as you read through some of those articles, you'll see that there are theories, there are things that have been talked about, but there's not, there doesn't seem to be one perfect answer that we have been given, which, as you've heard me talk about before, is one of my favorite things. I love when there is not a perfect answer for something. I also love when there is a perfect answer. That's also amazing. But it was never supposed to be like that. And eventually we'll get to know, and it'll be so cool. All right, so I am going to be primarily relying on Moses 6 from here on out, as it's a much more complete version compared to Genesis 5. So when Enoch is 65, it says that he's traveling among the people, and during his travels, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and spoke with him. The Lord tells him that he is angry with the people for their wickedness and asks that Enoch go out among them to preach repentance. He tells Enoch that their hearts are hard and their ears are dull and they cannot see. So as a quick side note, this isn't the main thing I want to talk about, but 
I always find it interesting, the phrasing of speaking of the wicked saying that they cannot see. In this chapter and in many other scriptures, we read about the Holy Ghost. And when we have the Holy Ghost, our minds are quickened. We have a higher capability to obtain and understand knowledge from God, a grander perspective. And it seems that the inverse is also true. When we are wicked, we lose the spirit and we are far from God. And as a result, it is hard to see. When we are truly removed from God in our life, we cannot see. It's not within our capabilities. And I find it interesting when I think about our world in general and so many of the ways of thinking that are so far from the ways of God. I hear the logic and reasons that people use to prop up these thoughts. And when I hear them, and when I myself am close to the Spirit, I feel sad as I hear them because they have removed themselves far enough away from the spirit that they cannot see their perspective isn't lined up with God. And so therefore they don't have the capability of seeing in line with his perspective. And as we've talked about before, Satan's pretty tricky. He comes up with some pretty awesome, logical ways of, of thinking of making our minds believe that something is logical, that something is true. That is not. I know I've certainly noticed times when I'm farther from the Spirit and I find myself thinking in ways that are not in line with God's perspective. And in the moment, they feel justified and they feel logical. And then as soon as I come back to God, as soon as I align myself closer, I realize how flawed my thinking was. But in the moment, I couldn't see. And that perspective is lost to us unless we repent. And I think that one of the hard things about breaking out of perspectives that we have aligned our minds with that come from Satan is that as we listen and obey, as we're called back to God, there's a little feeling within us that pulls us closer to him. And yet something still blocks our way or slows us down. And it's that way of thinking, that perspective from from Satan that doesn't necessarily shift immediately. We have to be willing to take the steps of faith first, not requiring that God align with our perspective first, but do what Alma tells us in Alma 32, experiment on his word, have faith that perhaps you can trust someone other than yourself. And as we do that, our perspective will eventually realign with God. Even our logic eventually realigns with God. And that might be a pretty long process. I think that there are plenty of us who have things that don't quite make sense in our minds. And I think the key is to always be willing to put things on the altar of faith, trusting that God will eventually enlighten you when you are ready and being okay with the fact that he might not think that you're ready yet, that he might think that you have some other things to work on first before you are gifted with that greater enlightenment. Even the Savior grew grace from grace. The same is with us. We have to grow. We have to accept and fully embrace simpler things first. And as he determines that we are ready, that we have the faith necessary to be accountable for more, that will happen on his timeline and in his wisdom, not on ours. Okay, back to Enoch. He is asked to go preach to the people. And I think what he says next is so relatable to every single one of us. He says in verse 31, when Enoch had heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and spake before the Lord saying, why is it that I have found favor in thy sight and am but a lad and all the people hate me for I am slow of speech. Wherefore am I thy servant? So Enoch at age 65 calls himself but a lad. But when you compare yourself to your insanely old great, 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 
great-grandfather, Adam, you probably feel pretty spry. When you personally have been asked to do something, whether it be a calling or being a parent, being a ministering brother or sister, whatever you feel called to do by the Lord, have you ever felt like Enoch? Wondering what the Lord sees in you. Why does he think that you are the best person for this job? Have you ever felt focused on your imperfections, feeling them outweigh all of your positive attributes? Have you ever felt like someone else is much more qualified? Have you ever felt as though people you are called to serve won't respond to you, that it's a lost cause and what difference could you possibly make? I have certainly felt every single one of these feelings in many different areas of my life, one of which is this podcast. I know I've said it before, but on paper, I am definitely not qualified to do this podcast. I don't have any kind of degree, let alone any religious or speaking degree. I haven't really held any major callings. And forget degrees or callings, I don't have any kind of training other than growing up in the church. I live in an area filled with BYU professors and church experts who are far more experienced and knowledgeable in these areas than I am. For sure, on paper, I am not qualified. And when I felt that I wanted and needed to do this, a big part of me rebelled against that calling. I felt embarrassed to try, embarrassed to have people that I know listen to me and think all of those thoughts that I was already thinking about myself. And if I'm being honest, I still feel a little embarrassed when I think about certain people in my life listening to me and perhaps thinking thoughts in their head that might not be something that would make me feel very good. And even worse, every so often I find myself thinking about people actually talking about me and perhaps making fun of me. Maybe they don't, and maybe they do. And logically, I know that if anybody is, it's it's their problem. <laughs> it's not my problem. But louder than any of these thoughts about other people are the thoughts about my Father in Heaven and my Savior. Those are the thoughts that get to be in charge of my actions. My testimony and love for the Savior qualifies me. The fact that I felt prompted and called by Him to do this qualifies me. As much as sometimes those pesky thoughts get to me, when it comes down to it, I sincerely care much more about what the Lord thinks of me than what anyone else thinks of me. So at the end of the day, can anything but great good come from me testifying of Jesus Christ? No. Moroni 7.13, That which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything that inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve Him is inspired of God. With that scripture in my back pocket, I can firmly say to myself that as I invite and entice anyone who is listening to do good continually, to love God and serve Him, that this work is of God. And God can only do good and bring good. And God will use all good things to complete His ultimate mission, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And just like this is one of the things that I am called to do, you have many things that you are called to do. And as you rely on Jesus Christ, I promise that you are qualified to do all of them and that he will do great things through your small and simple acts of service in his name. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We can't even imagine what God can do through what sometimes feels like insignificant or inadequate acts of service in his name. 
Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We do all of these things clumsily and imperfectly, but as we learn to do them with a pure, grateful, and faith-filled heart, the Lord will support us and make our efforts everything that he needs them to be, just like he did for Enoch. In Moses 6.32 it says, And the Lord said unto Enoch, Go forth and do as I have commanded thee, and no man shall pierce thee. Open thy mouth, and it shall be filled, and I will give thee utterance, for all flesh is in my hands, and I will do as seemeth me good. Behold, my spirit is upon you, wherefore all thy words I will justify. And the mountains shall flee before you, and the rivers shall turn from their course, and thou shalt abide in me, and I in you. Therefore, walk with me. Isn't that what he asks us to do? Therefore, walk with me. Go on a journey with the Lord. Make your life something you are doing with the Lord as he is in you. Before Enoch goes to preach to the people, he is asked to do something kind of interesting, something that reminds us of a miracle that Jesus performed in John chapter 9 when he heals a blind man. Verse 35, And the Lord spake unto Enoch and said unto him, Anoint thy eyes with clay and wash them, and thou shalt see. And he did so. After obeying the Lord's command, Enoch saw some amazing things. Verse 36, And he beheld the spirits that God had created, and he also beheld things which were not visible to the natural eye. And from thenceforth came the saying abroad in the land, A seer hath the Lord raised up unto his people. We already talked about blindness a little bit. We talked about it, how it applies to the wicked, which we all are sometimes. But here, I think it's really cool to think about the levels of blindness. Obviously, Enoch was a very righteous man. Obviously, he was worthy to speak with the Lord and be commanded to go do these great things. So in what ways was this good man still blind before he anointed his eyes with the clay? It seems to me that Enoch was had a spiritual level beyond any of us listening right now. He isn't someone that I would put in the category as being spiritually blind like we talked about before. It seems to me that Enoch was at such a level that he was able to ascend beyond a point that most of us imagine being at here on the earth. He was going from the level of a regular righteous man to the level of a seer. That is the blindness that was cured here. He was able to see things that were not visible to the natural eye. Joseph Smith said this about the role of seers. And as you listen to this, think about the amazing fact that we listen to prophets, seers, and revelators twice a year in general conference and hopefully throughout all of the year as an active force for good in our life. He said, wherefore we say again, search the revelations of God, study the prophecies, and rejoice that God grants unto the world seers and prophets. They are they who saw the mysteries of godliness. They saw the flood before it came. They saw angels ascending and descending on a ladder that reached from heaven to earth. They saw the stone cut out of the mountain which filled the whole earth. They saw the Son of God come from the region of bliss and dwell with men on earth. They saw the Deliverer come out of Zion and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. They saw the glory of the Lord when he showed the transfiguration of the earth on the mount. They saw every mountain laid low and every valley exalted when the Lord was taking vengeance upon the wicked. They saw truth spring out of the earth, and righteousness look down from heaven in the last days. 
Before the Lord came the second time to gather his elect, they saw the end of wickedness on the earth, and the Sabbath of creation crowned with peace. They saw the end of the glorious thousand years when Satan was loosed for a little season. They saw the day of judgment when all men received according to their works. And they saw the heavens and the earth flee away to make room for the city of God when the righteous receive an inheritance in eternity. Do we underestimate the amazing blessing we have of modern-day prophets, seers, and revelators, and the amazing blessing we have of ancient prophets, seers, and revelators? Some of those things that Joseph Smith talked about have already happened. We're already a reality. And the things that he talked about that are in the future will be the same. They will be a reality. They will have happened at some point. As we see our prophets, seers, and revelators with our own eyes, as we see them stand up with their aging bodies and realize that they are in fact human and imperfect, do we forget the blessing that we have in front of us? Do we underestimate the power and authority that they hold here on the earth? Do we forget that God has worked through mere mortals since the beginning of time? I do not think it's helpful for us to put these prophets up on pedestals that go beyond mortal. This Enoch we are reading about this week was a man, an imperfect man, who needed a Savior just like you need a Savior. A savior and a plan that he very clearly understood as he beautifully, articulately, and powerfully outlines for the people he preaches to in the rest of this chapter. This man of self-proclaimed slow speech had no reason to worry, because the Lord told him that thou shalt abide in me and I in you. Walk with me. Enoch was on his own journey here, just as we are on our own journey. Elder Clark G. Gilbert taught us this last general conference about his parable of the slope using some basic math. So I'm just going to summarize. Picture a graph. The horizontal axis represents our life chronologically. And on the vertical axis, we have our starting point in life. Some of us start out with more advantages, more ideal circumstances, therefore higher up on that line. And some of us start with some major disadvantages or poor circumstances, therefore lower on that line. Elder Gilbert then explains that the starting point is not what the Lord cares about, nor is it what we should focus on in our life. We should focus on our slope, our trajectory. Even someone who starts out higher up on that line with more advantages as they live their life, that doesn't necessarily mean they have to continue to slope upward from there. They can remain stagnant or even slope downward. The same applies to someone who started out with major disadvantages. What matters is their slope. As they live their life, do they slope upwards? That upward slope will likely surpass many of those who started out with great advantages if they live their life with the Lord's help. They also too can remain stagnant or slope downward. Demonstrating that although those circumstances are real and hard and should be acknowledged and cared for, that starting point is not what the Lord cares about, nor is it what we should focus on. We need to focus on the trajectory of where we are heading. Elder Gilbert continues, Jesus Christ sees divine potential no matter where we start. He saw it in the beggar, the sinner, the infirm. He saw it in the fisherman, the tax collector, and even the zealot. No matter where we start, Christ considers what we do with what we are given. While the world focuses on our intercept, God focuses on our slope. It is in the Lord's calculus. He will do everything he can to help us turn our slopes toward heaven. 
This principle should give comfort to those who struggle and pause to those who seem to have every advantage. Let me start by addressing individuals with difficult starting circumstances, including poverty, limited access to education, and challenging family situations. Others face physical challenges, mental health constraints, or strong genetic predispositions. For any struggle with difficult starting points, please recognize that the Savior knows our struggles. He took upon Him our infirmities, that His bowels might be filled with mercy, that He might know how to succor us according to our infirmities. Let me share two areas of encouragement for those facing difficult starting circumstances. First, focus on where you are headed, not where you began. It would be wrong to ignore your circumstances. They are real and need to be addressed. But overfocusing on a difficult starting point can cause it to define you and even constrain your ability to choose. Finally, let me share two areas of counsel for those with elevated starting points. First, can we show some humility for circumstances we may not have created ourselves? As former BYU president Rex E. Lee quoted to his students, We have all drunk from wells we did not dig and warmed ourselves by fires we did not build. He then called on his students to give back and replenish the educational wells that earlier pioneers had built. Failure to recede the fields planted by others can be the equivalent of returning a talent without increase. Second, focusing on a high starting point can often trap us into feeling that we are thriving when in fact our inner slope may be quite stagnant. Harvard professor Clayton M. Christensen taught that the most successful people are the humblest because they are confident enough to be corrected by and learn from anyone. Elder D. Todd Christofferson counseled us to willingly find ways to accept and even seek correction. Even when things appear to be going well, we must seek out opportunities to improve through prayerful petition. Man, doesn't that just make you feel excited about where you can go with your slope and light a fire in you? to self-analyze and make sure that you're not being stagnant? I know it has for me. Regardless of whether we start in abundant or difficult circumstances, we will realize our ultimate potential only when we make God our partner. Enoch had the Lord's promise that the Lord would abide in him. And we have that same promise. We have that same potential. With the Savior, you are qualified to teach your children the gospel. You are qualified to be a missionary and share the gospel. You are qualified to fulfill your calling. You are qualified to do whatever you feel called to do by the Spirit. Just like the Lord promised Enoch, He promises you, Open thy mouth, and it shall be filled, and I will give thee utterance. Do the next right thing. Be the change that you want to see in the world. This man who thought that he was inadequate, didn't even understand why the Lord was noticing him, was made powerful, mighty in speech, mighty in works, leading a civilization that became so righteous and so pure and so filled with the love of God that it was translated. Are you thinking right now that whatever the Lord has planned for you is surely not as unimaginably glorious as what was in Enoch's future? I am here to remind you that nothing could be further from the truth. Your eternal destiny is to become like the Lord. Your destiny is to have eternal increase. Your destiny is to have joy in your posterity and create worlds without number. And that destiny cannot happen on accident. It will not happen without intentionality, action, faith, love of God, and a life full of service. Enoch didn't get where he got through a life of complacency and inaction. All you have to do is read the rest of this chapter to see that his life was full of action, full of service, full of intentional, active faith and love of God, and full 
of an upward slope. As you implement action into your life, I can't tell you exactly what lies ahead. I can't tell you that life will be easy. In fact, the scriptures tell us the opposite. Historically, followers of Christ have not had it easy, have been no stranger to persecution, ridicule, and sometimes seemingly unbearable trials. And as we read about what is to come in the future, we know that the same will be true. But what I can tell you is that I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.